teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, please uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 6. We'll be picking up where we left off last week in Micah. And you know, as I was studying Micah, I was again reminded this week that um, he did not have the easiest of jobs. Uh, I wonder how many times Micah, if he'd had the opportunity, would have been looking up on monsters.com for maybe another type of job, or how often he wanted to update his resume uh, to do something else. Forbes magazine, uh, they publish each year this annual study of the, the best jobs and the worst jobs to consider pursuing for that year. Um, and so they determine this by considering a few factors, by considering pay, uh, job outlook, also looking at the work environment and job stress. And so they use these as a metric. And the top jobs that they identified last year were uh, among the dental hygienist, uh, chiropractor, a financial planner, software engineer, biomedical engineer. And these were all careers that they felt showed good growth opportunity, higher pay, lower stress. But they determined that the top job to pursue as of last year was to be an actuary. How many know what an actuary is? Oh, a few of you do. Well, that's good. Um, these guys are highly sought after, particularly by the insurance industry. Right, Jim Stone? Where are you? Yeah. Right? Because these guys actually, they take a bunch of, a boatload of statistical data and they determine from that data the probability of, of somebody getting in an accident or getting sick or the probability of death or property loss due to theft or natural disasters. And so these guys are highly sought after, important. Um, but the thing is, you have to do a lot of math and you have to really like it if you want to be an actuary. So that's something to consider. Any actuaries in here, by the way? Any actuaries? They're, they're too shy to even admit. Okay, so I've known a few in my life. And what, what interested me, though, was the, the worst jobs list that they identified. They included jobs such as meter reader, dairy farmer, lumberjack, mail carrier, oil rigger, and yes, actors. Yeah, that one hits close to home. Uh, but the worst of the worst they identified was newspaper reporter. Basically, the online media is essentially going to eradicate that job in the near future, at least according to their estimations. But what I thought was kind of funny, you know, as I was looking through these jobs, you know, I was online looking at this survey thing, and, and they'd have the job there and then the explanation of why they rated it so low. And then what struck me as funny is right below that, they had these want ads for that specific, particular job. So I thought, yeah, being a reporter, that's the worst career you can imagine. But hey, if you want a job at the Seattle Times, contact this individual. So... I just thought that was pretty funny. That made me think about, you know, as I was looking at these things, if such a study was done in Micah's day, I'm willing to bet that profit would have topped the worst of the worst list, particularly being a prophet of God. Because, I mean, think about it. The pay wasn't that great. The hours were long. There were numerous job hazards. Just ask John the Baptist. Right? It was a lonely job. You weren't very popular. Jeremiah would tell you that. Then there's the interview process. 
Now think about this. On what job on this planet do you have to have on your interview list God? In addition to that, there's a very low probability of success. And beyond all of these difficulties, we have to remember something. These prophets were but men. They were human beings. And they often lived among the people that they prophesied to. They often knew many of them personally. And these guys would often be distressed and discouraged, especially through the continual rejection, the degree of sin and rebellion that was going on around them. Because if God had to raise up a prophet to warn the people, you know things were pretty bad. And these guys would go around and they would declare the impending doom. And and think about that. They're giving these messages to people in their own community. These are people that they know. And this was no different for Micah. In fact, go back to Micah chapter 1 for a minute. Back in Micah 1 verse 8. Micah had just declared God's judgment was coming. He declared God's judgment on Samaria and then on Jerusalem. And then notice what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. Right after that, he says, Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Micah was discouraged. Micah was distressed about this coming judgment upon these people in his own community. And for over 20 years, Micah had confronted the sins of the people. For over 20 years, he had addressed their injustice, their oppression, their immorality, their idolatry. For over 20 years, he had pleaded with them to repent, to turn back to God before it was too late. But the people, they didn't want to hear it. The people didn't listen. And last week in Micah 6, 8... He had laid out exactly what God desired of them. You remember that? He said, uh, this is what the Lord your God requires of you, but to what? To do justice and to love mercy or kindness and to walk circumspectly with your God, right? That's what he had proclaimed. But you know, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't care. They wanted to continue on in their sin and they ignored Micah's warnings and his pleadings. And we see that yet again in Micah 6 Verse 9, look at verse 9. This is where Micah says, right after he had told them what God desired, he says this, The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales in a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence, her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So here we see the people of Judah. They simply wanted to continue on in their unjust business practices and and their unfair and deceitful ways of how they treated one another. They didn't want to hear about doing justice and loving mercy. That was not something that they had desired. And God was not pleased by their deceit. If you notice in verses 10 and 11, he expresses that displeasure by asking these rhetorical questions. He asks them, do the wicked still, uh, do they still hoard their ill-gotten treasure within their houses? Do they still have those instruments that they use in order to gain wealth dishonestly? They would, uh, what they would do is, you know, they would have often scales. If you were to bring in some goods for, to purchase or to sell, and they would have these scales, and they would have this bag of, of weights that were a little lighter than, than listed. 
And if they were buying, that they would put them on. And if they were selling, they'd have these weights that are a little heavier than what was written on the weight. And so they would, in that way, be bilking others out of money. And so God says here, should, should I be okay with it, that this stuff is still going on? Should I be uh, just fine with it? Do I, do I wink at it and just look the other way? This dishonesty extended beyond just their business dealings. Notice Micah says in verse 12 that the residents of the city, he's likely referring to the city of Jerusalem, the residents of Jerusalem, all of them, they speak lies. They're deceitful. They're violent. This, this dishonesty, this ongoing dishonesty and harsh treatment, this was pervasive throughout the community. And so as a result, it demanded a response, right? And so Micah gives God's response in verse 13. Look there with me. God speaking through Micah says, So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You'll try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you shall bear the reproach of my people. You see, God is telling them here what? All that stuff you've accumulated by your dishonesty and by how you've treated others, your oppression and, and all these things that you've done, all of that is going to be taken from you. And the crops that you are working so hard to plant and to cultivate and then to harvest, there'll be a harvest, but it won't be a very big one. And what you are able to harvest, that is going to be given to the sword, he says, which simply means it's going to be taken away by invaders. Somebody else would enjoy the fruits of their labor. And then comes verse 16. It's quite a statement he makes here. He ends with the, God ends with a summary of their condition. And what he says here is that rather than following in God's ways, they've chosen to follow in the ways of another, in the ways of Omri and Ahab. Does anyone remember who those guys are? Can I get some of these Old Testament names? Anyone remember? These are two kings, two kings that lived about probably 100 plus years before Micah's time, and they reigned in the northern kingdom of Israel. Omri, he obtained the throne by assassination. He was noted in 1 Kings 16 as the most wicked king that had yet gone upon the throne in Israel. And his son was Ahab. And he didn't fare much better, did he? He married Jezebel, brought Baal worship into the land. In fact, they, it wasn't just they wanted to add Baal to worship. They wanted to eradicate worship of Yahweh out of the land. In addition to that, he introduced child sacrifice into Israel to these false gods. And so Ahab was also not the greatest of kings. In fact, he was even worse than his father. These two had quite a track record of evil. And here God says they were the model for the behavior in the people of Judah, not God himself. Again, it's a strong indictment. At this point, put yourself in Micah's shoes. Think of how you would feel in his circumstance. You've been preaching and warning and pleading and instructing and, and teaching these people for over 20 years, given your life to that. But even with all of that, 
all of your effort, all of your faithfulness, all of your prayers, all of your exhortation and pleading to these people, even after all of that, they're no better off than when you started. In fact, they're even worse than two of these notorious kings from the north. And they too now would suffer judgment like the northern tribes did. How would you feel if you were in his shoes? How would this impact you? Again, all the warnings, the rejection, and then all of the sin that is going on around you. And it finally had taken its toll on Micah. And it finally hit him. For look at what he says next in chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Let's stop there. Just as back in chapter 1, remember, Micah had declared judgment. And then he interjects his own feelings within that. Back there he said, I must lament and I must wail. I must mourn for what God is going to do. And here he again interjects himself. And he cries out here, woe is me. And that phrase is this idea of of despair, of discouragement. The NIV, I like how it translates it. It says, what misery is mine? I'm miserable. And there's a difference here though. In this lament, compared to the one he gave back in chapter 1. For the one back in chapter 1, he was lamenting over the situation, the coming judgment upon the people. But here his burden is more personal. For here, he isn't lamenting for Judah. Micah is lamenting for himself. And he says here, woe is me, I I can't take it anymore. My sorrow is too great for me to bear. You see, Micah is burdened here. And he's burdened because Judah is in dark days. He's burdened by the sin that he sees that is pervasive around him. It has entered every institution in society. It is everywhere. He notes here three examples in verses 1 to 6 of a total breakdown in society. There was a breakdown in the morality of the people. There was a breakdown in the leadership. And there was a breakdown in the family. Complete breakdown. In fact, Verses 1 and 2, he cites this breakdown in their morality by using this illustration. He, he compares himself as somebody who is hungry, craving for some fruit. And so he goes out into the vineyards and he goes out into the orchards looking for something to eat. And the uh, translation here doesn't indicate it clearly, but in the, the Hebrew, the idea of this fruit, it's summer fruit. The idea behind the word is that it is the time of season after the harvest where they harvested fruit. And also grape gatherer refers to one who's gathered harvested grapes. And so what he's saying here is he's going out into these vineyards and these orchards after the harvest. And as he's looking, what would you expect to find after these uh, trees and after these vines had been harvested? Anything? 
Now, that's exactly what he says, right? Just like somebody going out after harvest looking for fruit, there was none. There was nothing. Maybe just a few smashed figs on the ground, rotting. And he says that's exactly what it's like trying to find a righteous person in this land. There's nobody around. There are none. They are gone. Notice in verse 2, he says, The godly person has perished. They've disappeared. The upright or honest person doesn't even exist. And what's interesting here is those two adjectives, godly and upright, actually that word for godly, it comes from the same root as the word for kindness back in Micah 6, 8, chesed. Here godly is the word chesed. And it has that same idea. The word for upright is a synonym for a, a word for meaning to be just. And so notice here what he says back a few verses earlier about the God wanting them to do justice and to love kindness. And here he says, there's not one person that exhibits those qualities anywhere that I can find. They're gone. They're completely gone. They've disappeared. And in fact, Micah goes on further to say, actually what exists here is the opposite. He says at the end of verse 2, there are only those who plan to do violence, to do harm, like a Hunter hunting his prey. And that word, it says there uh, in verse 2 where he talks about them doing this harm. It says to each other. Each of them hunts the other. That word for other is the word brother. He's talking about fellow Israelites and what they do to each other. So he's burdened. He says at the beginning of verse 3, their evil is so pervasive, both hands do it well. And this actually is a very sarcastic phrase that Micah's giving here because that the word for do it well is almost always used in a moral context, an ethical one. It's speaking of somebody doing something good. They, they're good. They're doing good. And here Micah says, yeah, they're good at something all right. They're good at evil. And both hands are involved, meaning that they're zealous to do this evil. And so these first two verses... Micah's telling us that there's nobody around who cares about what God wants. There's nobody around who desires to follow the Lord. There's nobody like him who has a zeal for God. And so Micah feels alone, completely alone. Reminds me of Elijah. Remember at Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal? Who remembers what happened there? Remember he had the the confrontation with the Baal prophets, right? And they set up the altars and, and Elijah dumps a bunch of gasoline on his altar, right? It's water, right? All right, just want to make sure you're catching me on these, right? Does all that. Well, you know, the, the Baal prophets, they're doing all this stuff, cutting themselves, you know, and Mike, uh, um, Elijah's, you know, well, they see asleep. What's what you got doing, right? And then nothing happens. And then Elijah, before he even gets the prayer out of his mouth, God Utterly consumes that, right? Just imagine being there. Imagine being Elijah and like, yes! See, God is real! I told you! Right? What an amazing, exciting, um, spiritual high he must have been on. But then right in the next chapter, he's so depressed, he tells God, take my life. It's like, what? well, wait a minute. What happened? Elijah, you just, you just showed him all that God is the true God. All the Baal prophets got wiped out that day. But Elijah went off into the desert, 70-mile-plus journey, found a place to go, and he sat there and he said, God, take my life. I want to die. You know why? Because Ahab and Jezebel were still on the throne. And because he realized 
The worship of Baal is going to keep on going. The people have not changed. And then he says, I alone, uh, God asks him, you know, why do you want, me, why do you want to die, Elijah? And uh, we read in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah responds, I have been very zealous for the Lord, but I alone am left. And they seek my life to destroy it. He felt alone in a wicked place. Even after that great victory, he felt completely alone. He had no real fellowship. He had no one around him that loved the Lord as he did. No one on his side. And that's exactly how Micah feels right here. He feels like the lone voice crying out in the wilderness only to hear in response crickets. And Micah's misery is further compounded by the fact that the evil that he describes pervades the leadership, both civil and religious, in his land. He describes here how those who were expected to be examples of godliness and justice and love and compassion, they were the worst of the bunch. Look at verse 3, the second line there. Micah declares how the prince... That's a general term for a ruler, a government official. How the government officials and the judges, that they're asking for bribes. And so as verse 3 says, when the great man, or actually the man of influence, when he comes by and lets them know what he wants, these guys weave it together. That's an idiom expression of, for they conspire with one another to make it happen so that these rich oppressors would get what they want. And so we have a total breakdown in just leadership. And when it comes to political corruption, these guys have it over politicians in our day, hands down. And Micah says in verse 4 that rather than being like, you know, our, our leaders are to be like these productive plants that bring help and enjoyment and, and take care of us. But he says rather than that, these civil authorities are like a briar, a thorn hedge. Rather than bringing help or enjoyment to the people, they bring harm by their practices and then Micah goes on to say, if things could not be any worse in his society, not only is there a breakdown in the morality of the culture, not only is there a breakdown in the government, there's a breakdown in the family. Notice what he says here about that in verses 5 and 6. So he addresses something. He says, you know, if, if, any, if there's anyone we should be able to trust, it should be those in our own home, right? It should be our family. Those should be the ones that we can rely on in times of help those who share the familial bond either by blood or by marriage. And yet there was such a breakdown in Micah's day, he says, don't trust any of them. Don't trust any of them. In fact, he says, don't even trust the one you hold in your bosom. That is the one you hold in your arms, your own spouse. Guard your lips. Be careful what you say. And in verse 6, he details how children are against their own parents. He mentions the son treating his father contemptuously. The word there's actually for a fool. The son treating his dad like he's a fool. Daughter, daughters and mothers, daughters and mother-in-laws in total conflict. It's everywhere, he says. There's no respect, there's no honor, there's no obedience, there's no care. The home is a battle zone. So can you see this, this picture that, that Mike has painted of the times in his day? What things are like? Again, it's a complete breakdown in every aspect of society. The sin is pervasive. And though he has put his own heart and his own soul for many, many years in trying to help change the culture and calling the people to turn back to God, to, to seek him, he will forgive, he will accept, he will care for you. And they rejected him. 
And even when he brought warnings that turn before God destroys you, they still rejected him. His leaders are corrupt. Families are torn apart. All he sees is violence, abuse, deceit, oppression, immorality. Micah's living in a dark land. And he's come to a point in his life when he sees there's no hope for change. And he's alone. I fear what we see in Micah's day, that's not too far in our own future. And we can be discouraged like Micah. Maybe, in fact, you're in a circumstance right now where you're surrounded in your job or in your home in a similar situation. Maybe you're experiencing the trials of living in a sinful place around sinful people. Maybe you too feel like a spiritual island. Have there been those days where you might cry out like Micah, woe is me, what misery is mine? Maybe you're discouraged by something other than what Micah was going through, but you too feel alone like he did. Or maybe you've experienced something too painful, loss of someone near, betrayal of someone near overwhelming problems in some part of your life. Maybe you feel helpless. Maybe you feel discouraged. Maybe you feel alone. Micah knows how you feel. The circumstances may be different, but he understands. King David was another who was often discouraged in his life, right? We've read many of his psalms that express that discouragement. Psalm 13, David asks these questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? He was discouraged. Prophet Jeremiah was often there. In fact, he wrote an entire book expressing his discouragement. It's called Lamentations. It's an appropriate title because it's full of his lamenting. In Lamentations 2.19, he describes the bitterness and affliction that he had experienced because he was seeing the same things in his day that Micah saw in his. And in that same passage, he ex- talks about how his soul had, had sunk low. He was deeply discouraged. Elijah's soul had sunk low, hadn't it? To the point he wanted to die. And you think about, these are godly men. They're not perfect, They're sinners such as you and I, but they were men who walked with God. They were men who carried the message of God. They were men who had seen the incredible things God had done, and even they got discouraged by life. Even they got to points where they just want, I'm done. I want out. They were not immune to dark times in their life as well. In fact, there's numerous psalms where the psalmists, right, they're called psalms of lament, About a third of the Psalms are in that category. And those are poems that express the living life in this world. And if a third of them are focused on the struggles and the trials and the difficulties of life, they understand. But this morning, we can be encouraged. Because Micah did not stay in that hole of despair that he was in. Micah had a way out. And he shows us the way out. In verse 7, up to this point, he's been describing how he lived in dark times and how it affected him and how discouraged he was. But in verse 7, he shows us what to do in those dark times. And here we see three things to do in the midst of dark times. Look at verse 7. But 
As for me, I will wait expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Short verse. But he tells us here three things that we need to do when we're in those times of struggle. And the first thing that he says here is make a resolve. Make a resolve. Be resolved. Notice after Micah, he expresses his lament in verses 1 to 6 and all the things going on, all the sin that is around him, the feeling of being alone in a dark world. Notice the beginning of verse 7. We see an abrupt turn, don't we? What does he say there? It's the first thing he says in verse 7. But as for me. Those four little words, which are one word in Hebrew, that short little phrase expresses Micah's resolve to reset, reset his thoughts. It expresses his resolve to refocus his attention. It shows a resolve to redirect his own heart to a different place. And so we have yet another example here where it reminds us that when you are discouraged, when you are depressed, when you are tempted, when you are being captured by your own emotion and it is taking you to a, a dark place, you must not listen to yourself, right? But you must what? You must... Guys, it's our men's breakfast series, right? You must preach to yourself, right? You must preach to yourself. And we see this often in the Psalms of Lament. I read earlier from David in those questions where he was actually essentially accusing God of abandoning him. And as he goes on and on, Lord, why did you leave me? Where are you? Why did you abandon me? Am I talking to myself here? And then he says in verse 5, but as for me, same word. Psalm 31, again, David was expressing distress as he, he looked back on his life. And he saw the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty he experienced, the betrayal. He was even being betrayed in that moment, he says in the psalm. But then he says this, after his lamenting, he says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. Psalm 71, the psalmist there laments of all the accusers who were around him, attacking him, wanting him to, to do him harm. And he too says, But as for me, I will hope continually. And we'll praise you yet more and more. You see, all, all these guys, they're, they're skidding down the slippery slope of despair. Increasing in speed. And what is it that it brings this abrupt halt to their skidding? But as for me, it's like the guy sliding down the ice cliff. And the only thing he's got in his hands is that pick. And he slams it into the cliff to grab himself before he plunges to his death. That's exactly what that phrase is doing for these people. They're saying is, yeah, you know, this bad stuff is going on around me. Things are pretty bad. My heart is losing strength, but I'm going to choose to refocus my attention on something else. But as for me, and beloved, those are four words we all need at the ready. We all need them at the ready. For as we get, we get swallowed up, and those things that are happening around us, it is so easy to lose heart. It is so easy to get discouraged. It is so easy just to want to give up. I understand that. And it's in that moment, you take yourself aside. <laughs> you say, hey, but as for me. But as for me. 
if you want to grow strong in your walk with Christ, if you, if you want to live a life of faith, if you want to have that nearness to God, if, if you want to be able to get past these spiritual roadblocks that will happen in your life, and they will, and they will continue to until we're in glory, then you, you have to know how to gather the resolve to preach to yourself. You have to be able to say with conviction, even in those darkest moments, but as for me, stop the skid. It's an easy phrase to memorize, isn't it? Everybody say it with me. But as for me, I'll ask you again at the end of the service. We can all memorize that phrase. What it is, it's like this big stop sign. Say, stop, stop, wait a minute. But as for me, but as for me. Question remains though, well, okay, sounds nice, but how do I get that resolve? Especially in those moments when I don't feel like it. How do I get, get from this woe is me to but as for me? What does that look like? Well, the answer has to do with the object of your resolve. This isn't collecting some inner strength within you. Otherwise, you'll just stay on the path and keep on skidding. It has the, this idea of the object that's important. That brings us to the second thing to do in dark times, and that is to wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord. Notice in verse 7 what Micah follows his resolve by. He doesn't give some inspirational poem or have some little poster on his wall that has these encouraging, inspiring words or some abstract words about hope or faith or believing in yourself. Right? Micah directs his attention to a person, doesn't he? Notice that. A person, not a concept. A living being, not a cliché. Leslie Allen, a scholar, said this, Micah's pessimism did not drive him into the arms of despair, but into the arms of God, to whom he was personally related. And notice here, Micah says, I will, I will wait expectantly for the Lord. I will, or says, excuse me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Again, Micah doesn't here stop himself and then just put on this happy face. And I'm just going to think happy thoughts now. He doesn't say, but as for me, well, I'm just going to keep going and get, us through it, get through this, and eventually things are going to get better. Micah didn't mouth some empty platitudes and then just hope for the best. He, he didn't express a desire to escape from his troubles. Rather, he says this, I will wait expectantly, what? For the Lord. I will watch expectantly. I will wait for the God of my salvation. So important. But that response is, it's the opposite of how most people normally react, right? I mean, when some painful experience comes along, what do we usually want to do? Watch and wait? No, we want to run. We want to get out of there. We want to escape. We don't want to stay there. God, remove me from this circumstance. Take these evil people away from me or take me away from these evil people. Either way, I want to get out of here. That's exactly what Elijah wanted. Lord, I want to die. But God says, you know what? The, I haven't loaded up the fiery chariot yet, so you're going to have to stick around a little longer, Elijah. But that's the natural response we all have. I want out. Get me out. And Micah says here, but as for me, I will watch and I will wait. 
That watch expectantly is a word that has this idea of uh, being a guard, a watchman. In fact, he used the same root as the word used back in verse 4, a watchman. But back there, Micah mentions a watchman looking for judgment. Here, Micah is a watchman patiently waiting for salvation. And not only does he say he will watch, he also says he will wait. And wait here means exactly that, wait. (laughs) Wait. It's a resolve to wait for God to act. It recognizes that uh, taking matters into your own hands or, or trying to force things in your favor or, or fretting about until things change, that this word knows none of that. In fact, uh, Tim read that psalm earlier, right? Psalm 42. There's a phrase that's repeated often in that psalm. It's a psalm of somebody who's very discouraged, someone who's in a spiritual desert longing for God. And there's that repeated refrain that is mentioned Remember what he says when he's in that dark place? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you troubled within me? It's interesting there, right? He's preaching to himself. He's not listening anymore. He's saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why? Why are you there, heart? Why are you in despair? And you remember what his answer was? Hope in God. That word hope there, same word as the word wait in Micah. He's saying here, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become troubled within me? Wait for God, for I will yet praise him. Wait, he says. We see the same thing in the psalm that Brother John mentioned earlier, Psalm 119. Do you realize that psalm was written not as a a guy who wanted to sit down and write about the Bible? It was a psalm written by a man under great affliction and despair. Over 20 verses in that psalm, he expresses how he was discouraged, how others were against him. And he wrote that psalm as a means to find life again, to be strengthened, to be revived, and to show us where we can find that revival. And notice often, in fact, verse 28, he says this, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me. That's the cry of the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 119. And then in verse 43, he says, Do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. Verse 49, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me wait. Verse 74, May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Verse 81, My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. In verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. What's this guy doing in his struggle? He's going before God and he's waiting. In the midst of his struggle, he declares he will wait for God. It's exactly what we see in Jeremiah and those Lamentations. In fact, turn over to Lamentations 3. It's about eight books to your left from Micah. Lamentations chapter 3. I said earlier this book contains the laments of Jeremiah as he lived in dark days in Judah and with a sinful people. And, and again, Jeremiah felt exactly like Micah felt. He was discouraged deeply. But in the midst of his discouragement, listen to his prayer In Lamentations 3.19, you'll recognize a famous hymn in here, by the way. Lamentations 3, verse 19. 
Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness? Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Here's another man with a soul that has sunk low. This I recall to my mind. Here's the resolve kicking in, folks. Notice what he does. Therefore I, and your translation probably says hope. It's the same word wait. Therefore I wait. Therefore I wait. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. What? saints great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i wait same word for him the lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the lord you see a theme here this man is discouraged and he goes to god and he pours out his heart and he says god i will wait for you That's the man you're looking for. That's the woman you're looking for. Jeremiah knew what Micah knew. (laughs) When discouraged, when empty, when struggling, he must wait for God. I like what Spurgeon said. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. But what do you mean wait? If God cares, why doesn't he do something now? He sees my distress. He sees the situation I'm in. Why doesn't he act? Why does he say wait? We always have to go back, right? Beloved, God has good purposes in everything that he does. And he often wants us to wait. Many times we don't know why. You know, I thought about all those times I've got five children and we've gone through the toddler years with all of them. And every single one of them, one of their training things that we had to do is as we were waiting to cross the street, right? What do you teach your child to do? Yeah, go ahead, take off. I'll catch up with you in a minute. What do you teach them? Wait, (laughs) wait, right? And they're like straining because they see that thing they want over there, right? Taking them to the playground and they see that slide. It's their slide. They want that slide and they're going to get there. But how many times I told my children, wait until daddy says it's okay to cross the street. And there were those times again, they badly wanted to cross, but on the sidewalk they stood and they waited. They didn't understand these big machines going across the street here or something that could really do their little bodies a lot of harm, right? They didn't understand death and how these things could take them out. They didn't know how bad they could be hurt, but I did. And so I wanted them to trust me and wait. But if, if I just sit here and wait and I don't take any action, nothing's going to change. I've been in this trial for so long. Does God expect me to stay here? Who's going to say anything to that? (laughs) I have to say, sometimes it might be yes. (laughs) What is this waiting anyway? What am I supposed to do when I wait? Sit there and twiddle my thumbs? And do I sit there and do nothing? Go back to Micah 7. Look at the last words of verse 7. What does he say there? What's the last line? 
my God will hear me. What's he doing? Sitting there doing nothing? No, he's crying out to God, isn't he? This is a prayerful waiting. It's seeking the Lord's direction in his word, just like Psalm 119 said. Remember, remember the apostles when they were in the upper room? Jesus told them after he ascended into heaven, this glorious event, the apostles had experienced the resurrection and seen Christ, spent 40 days with him, been instructed by him, and then he ascends into heaven and Jesus tells them, go into Jerusalem and wait. They did it again. Wait for God's power to come. And so they went up into the upper room and went up there and, you know, clicked online, watched a little World Cup, uh, played some cards. <laughs> you know what they were doing up there when they were waiting? It says in Acts 1.14, good, you guys know, that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And they happened to select the 12th apostle, a little minor thing there they did as well. They were in their upper room waiting, waiting in prayer. And that's what God wants us to do when he tells us to wait. You know, when my, when my child is standing there looking across the street, I didn't want them focusing on what was over there because what would that tempt them to do, right? I wanted them focused on me. So I'd say, look at daddy, wait, wait for daddy. That's exactly what God wants us to do, all right? Quit looking over there. Look at him and wait and wait. That's why the word hope and trust is often translated for this word wait because that's exactly what's behind it. God wants us to take our eyes off of what is across the street and turn our attention towards him. And in prayer, we look to God and in his word, we listen for his voice and then we walk when he walks. And to do this again means that we must have faith. We must trust him implicitly, right? That brings us to the third thing to do in living in dark times, and it is to pray in faith. Again, look at that last line in verse 7. I will wait, watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. There's confidence in Micah's voice. He has great confidence. So much could be said about what he says here because in these words, Micah shows that as he's sitting there, he's not rocking back and forth and wringing his hands. Oh, please, God. Oh, please, oh, please. You know, that wasn't the condition of his heart. He cried out from his heart to God and then he says, I know my God hears me. I know he hears me. Micah directed his petition to the Lord and knew that God would hear him. And beloved, when you prayerfully wait, God may not answer you right away, but know this, you're his child and he hears you. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted him for salvation, and God will hear. But Tim, how can you be so sure that God will hear? How could Micah have been so sure about God hearing him? Well, I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that question from Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? I love what Spurgeon said after quoting this verse. Is that not clear enough? 
He has given himself and his son. How can he shut out our cries? After what he has done for us in the past, we cannot doubt that he will hear us. What? Give us cleansing by his blood and then not hear us? What? Give us new birth and then not hear us? Did he bless us when we did not seek him? And he will, will he not hear us when we do seek him? What? Look after us when we were like stray sheep, deaf to all his calls. Seek, us after, seek after us till he restored us and then not hear us when we become the sheep of his pasture? Impossible, Spurgeon says. The argument's irresistible. My God will certainly hear me. Amen, Brother Spurgeon. Now, to some it may seem, well, that, that's a little bit arrogant <laughs> to claim to say, I know that God will hear me. But think of this. If, if I called my dad up on the phone right now, I know he'd listen to me. First, he'd ask me what I'm doing. Am I supposed to be preaching? Why am I calling him? But after... I know he'd listen to me. And if I had a problem or a struggle or a need, I know, I know for a fact he would be especially attentive and want to help. Am I being presumptuous? Am I being arrogant to think that my dad would listen? I know he will listen. Do you know why I know? He's my dad. I'm his son. He cares about me. He loves me. And because I have his grandkids. <laughs> but seriously, why can you be confident that God would hear you? Because he is your father. You are his son or his daughter. He cares. And he will hear you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not freely give us all things? How in the world would he send his son to die on the cross for our sins? And then when we cry out to him, he, oh, I got something other to do. I can't, I can't listen to you right now. <laughs> he gave up everything. This is the confidence of one who knows Jesus Christ. This is the faith of one who has been adopted by God. He knows his father will hear. She knows her father will hear. In closing, I want you to turn to 1 John 5. 1 John, all the way on the other side. John ends his letter with this same confidence that Micah had. In fact, John wrote his letter so that we would have this same confidence that Micah had in our prayers. John 5, 1 John 5, verse 13 John gives us these words. <clears throat> First John 5, 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, what? He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, I want to ask you something. Why did John write this letter? Verse 13. He gives us his reason explicitly, right? He says, I've written these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, right? First John is a letter that expresses 
how to have assurance of salvation. And why did he want them to be assured of their salvation? So that they would know they're going to heaven? Is that the only reason? Look at the next verse, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you know why John wanted God's children to be assured of their relationship with him and those who weren't, to recognize they weren't so they could get saved? Do you know why he wanted his children to be assured? You see it here? So that we'd have confidence that God hears our prayers. That's why. That's undergirding this letter. It's not just a letter to assure us of salvation. It's a letter to assure us of salvation so that when we go to the Father, we know He hears us. That we'd have confidence, not arrogance, not presumption, just to know He's my Father. We have a relationship. I've been born again through Him. I am His son. I am His daughter. My dad hears my cry. I would ask you this morning, can you say with Micah, my God will hear me? Do you have confidence when you pray that he is the God of your salvation? God sent his son Jesus Christ in this world because the Father sent him as a means to be salvation for sinners, of which every one of us in this room are in that category. We have all sinned against God. And our sin, that sin prevented any relationship that we could have with him so that he would not hear us, did not hear us. But Jesus gave his life on a cross and he gave that life, he lived a perfect life and died on that cross in order to be substitution, payment for our sin debt. If we would but turn to him in faith, ask him for forgiveness and desire to turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus no matter the cost for life. And Jesus will forgive. That first prayer that you offer him in confessing your sin, God will hear and he will hear everything after that. Ask Jesus to forgive you and seek his mercy and he will certainly give it. And then you can join the throng of those who God has graciously saved through his son, Jesus Christ. And along the way with them say, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words from your servant Micah who came to a point in his life that he was so discouraged felt so alone. Lord, we may be there, have been there many times in our lives. And Father, I pray you would remind us of Micah's resolve so that we would have the same resolve to direct our attention not to our struggles, not to getting out of them and what's across the street, but direct our attention to you and wait for you. Lord, we need strength to do that, grace to do that, Lord Jesus, you understand. You became man. You had the same weaknesses as we, but yet without sin and can be a, a comforting example to us. Lord, remind us to look to you in those dark times in our lives.
Father, I pray, Lord, that all of us would desire Christ. I pray if any here do not know him, God, open their eyes so that they may see. Lord, before it is too late. Thank you again just for the encouragement that you hear your children and often tell us to wait. Lord, grant us the faith to wait and watch. pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. But as for me, would you please uh, stand? Let's end our time this morning with the final words from David in Psalm 13. As I mentioned earlier, as he was lamenting, he said, but as for me, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen.